the drama of the story comes from the fact that Frances wants to make something of her life. She wants both love and she wants what we would say if she were a man, power. She wants a political public life. And the way to achieve a public life for an aristocratic daughter is to marry well and to become essentially a political wife. Eustace always said he wasn't interested in politics. I think she married him thinking, of course, he's going to eventually want to go into politics. But Frances falls in love with her brother-in-law. She falls in love with Gerald, who at the time is single. And bit by bit, a very close relationship develops between the two of them. And she does achieve her ambition in that she's Gerald's political wife. But in 1886-87, he meets Betty Lytton, and he decides he needs an actual wife. And so there's a kind of drama where Frances essentially tells Betty how much Gerald means to her. She's only really happy when he's around. Welcome to Scuss Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Susan Peterson, Governor Morris Professor of British History at Columbia University in the USA, and fellow here at SCAS during the autumn term of 2021. And this is the first episode in our theme, Gender. Susan Peterson has written widely on British, European and international politics after 1900. Her first book examined the way in which European welfare states came to account for dependence. Her second book recovered the political career and visionary thought of the feminist and social reformer Eleanor Rathbone. In 2014, she delivered the Ford Lectures at the University of Oxford on the subject of internationalism and empire, British dilemmas, 1919 to 1939. She is a regular contributor to the London Review of Books. Susan Peterson's latest book, The Guardians, The League of Nations and the Crisis of Empire, was awarded the 2015 Candell History Prize for Historical Literature. During her stay at SCAS, she has worked on a new book with the working title Balfour's and Love and Trouble. And that is also what we will talk about today. Very welcome to Scouse Talks. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here, even if we are on a distant call. I had the pleasure to read the passage from your book manuscript, the book that you're working on now. Could you read a passage also for our listeners so they get a taste of the book? Sure. What I'll read is the opening to the first chapter. This will probably be prefaced by a short introduction that may begin with the death of my main character, Lady Frances Balfour, one of the two main characters. But this is the opening to chapter one, which is about Frances's marriage to Eustace Balfour, a younger brother of A.J. Balfour. So this is just about two, three pages. Marriage is a tricky business at the best of times, and 1877 was not the best of times, 
not if you were the tenth child and fifth daughter of a Scottish duke of vast acreage and still vaster encumbrances, your father tied up in liberal politics and landed defense, your mother ailing and often bedridden. Lady Frances Campbell, just 19, wasn't worried about presentation at court, the rigidly codified ceremony that petrified most aristocratic young women and marked their entry into the marriage market. Her brother Ian had married Queen Victoria's daughter Louise, after all. She and her sisters had been in and out of Buckingham and Kensington palaces since girlhood. She thought her Scottish lineage more distinguished than the Hanoverians anyway. Presented by Aunt Connie, that is her mother's sister, the Duchess of Westminster, got through it well, Frances jotted in her pocket diary on March 14, 1877. The London season that followed was another matter. She had fun running about with George, her elder brother and chaperone, at her first ball at Grosvenor House, London residence of Aunt Connie. But other balls proved more of a trial. Frances had a congenital deformation of her hip and had to wear a built-up shoe. She was an energetic walker, but dancing was a trial, her limp noticeable. Nobody danced with me for ages, she noted on June 23rd about another ball. I made this discovery that I've been very conceited and imagined myself popular quite forgetting this limp, which must annoy partners much. She was probably relieved when the family decamped at the end of July for Inverara Castle, seat of the Argyles. She had met Eustace Balfour by then, who as Lord Salisbury's nephew and Arthur Balfour's younger brother was surely an eligible young man, but there's no hint of an attachment in her diary. No attachment to him, that is. There are hints of plenty of passionate feelings for more than one silver-tongued 40-something clergyman. But Eustace was persistent, his esthete soul drawn perhaps by Francis's deceptive pre-Raphaelite looks. He appeared when the family returned to London the following spring, invited Francis to luncheon with his sister, and even managed to win the Duchess's approval before her sudden death that May. When the family decamped to Cannes that fall to cheer up the Duke, the tall, thin, pale, pallid young man followed. By Christmas, there was an engagement. So the pocket diary of 1879 opens with the resolutions a newly betrothed but quite churchy young girl might write. God grant that this new year may be spent in his service. May he bless Eustace my husband, making me a true helpmeet to him and making us one in him. Like so many large families, the Balfour children had private pet names and Eustace, the youngest, was often called Peter, short for Jupiter, on account of his height. He was 6'4". Through that winter and spring of 1879, Frances's pocket diary is full of activities, lunches and teas and family visits through which the young couple were to get to know one another. There are moments of happiness, but a good deal of anxiety too. Frances berates herself for being selfish, bad-tempered and unworthy. One phrase recurs, was not good to Peter. She married him anyway on May 12th in 1879 St. John's Presbyterian Church, the rollicking red-headed Campbell clan eyeing askance the reserved, intellectual-looking Balfours. The next few months were busy ones, honeymoon visits to families, dinners with her father or with Arthur Balfour and his sister, weekends with the Salisbury's at Hatfield or the rallies at Turling Park. But the thicket of self-recrimination in the diary grows lusher and exhortations to do better proliferate. Was not good to Peter all day, this two days after the wedding. I behaved so badly to dear Peter, this two weeks later. Was not good to him, failing always, this two weeks after that. Through the summer and fall, it continues, odiously bad to E. I pledge myself to try again. Was not good to Peter. 
We're watching a marriage fail in its earliest days. Thank you very much for sharing this with us. I get very intrigued and also curious about these characters. So let's start with the main characters in your story, Lady Frances Balfour and Lady Betty Balfour. Who were these two women? So they're both daughters of important aristocratic men. Frances Balfour is the daughter of George Campbell, the 8th Duke of Argyle. The Argyles own a good portion of the Western Highlands and Islands. The Duke of Argyle has about 200,000 acres there. He's a landed aristocrat. He's also a very important figure in liberal politics for the mid to late Victorian period. And he's wealthy in the sense that he has a great deal of land, but he's also confronting a period of declining agricultural prices. So he has a large income, but he also has very significant debts and outlays. And he has 12 children and three major houses in Verera Castle, Rosny House, and Argyle Lodge in London, which he has on a long lease while he's in cabinet. He can't give Frances a lot of money, but she has a settlement of up 10,000 pounds, which is about 400 pounds a year. She's not an heiress exactly, but she does have a settlement and Eustace has about a thousand pounds a year. So they have the income of kind of an upper middle class family, not a grand aristocratic income. And Eustace buys a house in Kensington, buys the lease on a villa in Kensington, and that's where they live after their marriage. Lady Betty is the daughter of Lord Lytton, who was a notoriously bad viceroy of India. Betty Lytton is about eight years younger than Francis, and Betty marries another brother of the Balfours. She marries Gerald Balfour. So Betty has very little money because although the Littons have a very grand house and Lord Lytton is a diplomat, and he's a very high-profile kind of person. He's uh, a favorite of Queen Victoria's. That's why he's appointed Viceroy of India. He's later ambassador to France, and they have Nebworth, their house, but they don't have a lot of land, and they don't have a lot of wealth. So the income mostly comes from his work. He's a working peer, and the income also comes a bit from his father, Bulwer-Lytton, the novelist from his earnings. They have seven children. Francis's family, there's 12 children. So the very large families and basically portioning all the children is a major issue. Betty has a very, very tiny settlement. She's given 2,000 pounds on her wedding as a settlement, and that's about 100 pounds a year. That's essentially what a skilled worker would earn at the time. And she marries Gerald Balfour. The two husbands are the two youngest brothers of Arthur Balfour, the conservative prime minister and later the part author of the Balfour Declaration. Thank you very much for this background information. So we have the two couples, Frances and her husband Eustace Balfour and Betty and Gerald Balfour. In your book, you describe the entanglement of marriage and the political world. Can you tell us a little bit more about this phenomenon? I mean, the drama of the story comes from the fact that Francis is ambitious 
and also very, I don't know if you would want to say needy, but Frances wants to make something of her life. She wants both love and she wants what we would say if she were a man, power, we would call power. She wants a political public life. And the way to achieve a public life for her, for an aristocratic daughter, is to marry well and to become essentially a political wife. She sees her role initially very much in dynastic terms. She's from a grand Whig family, and she marries into an important conservative family. She thinks of herself as basically playing a role in the high politics as a kind of consort. But Eustace was offered a seat, well, not a seat, he was offered a constituency to nurse and then fight at an election for the conservatives. That happened a couple of times. He was offered one in, it must have been the early 1880s, and then again about 10 years later. And in both instances, he said he wasn't interested. He always said he wasn't interested in politics. Frances, I think, found that so astonishing that I think when she first met him, she just didn't believe it. I think she married him thinking, of course, he's going to eventually want to go into politics. You know, his brother is being coming up as a kind of conservative leader. His uncle is the leader of the conservatives. But Eustace is quite truthful about that. He trains as an architect. He becomes an architect. He then becomes the surveyor for the Grosvenor Estates in London. He's responsible for renovations of property owned by the Duke of Westminster. And he is an esthete and a member of a million clubs. He's not around all that much. Eustace is very hard to find out about because Frances destroyed all of her letters between all of the correspondence between Eustace and herself. You know, we don't know why the marriage was not very successful. And Frances, in her own autobiography, won't really tell us. That opening I read gives you a hint that something develops in the marriage that is not happy. And it's very hard for us to know exactly what, but I think there's a level of kind of marital unhappiness and probably sexual incompatibility. They do have a number of children, but Frances falls in love with her brother-in-law. She falls in love with Gerald, who at the time is single. And one of the interesting things is that Gerald is a Cambridge Don. He's a philosopher. He thinks of himself as an intellectual. He goes and lives in Italy at the time and is writing philosophy. He's writing to Francis all the time, and Francis is writing back. And bit by bit, a very close relationship develops between the two of them. And Francis also gets Gerald very interested in politics. And so at some point, he decides, actually 1882, he decides he's going to come back. Francis has been married three years. He's going to come back to England and he's going to enter politics. And he lodges in Francis's house. She's head over heels in love with him. And she does achieve her ambition of becoming a political wife, in a sense, in that she's Gerald's political wife, in the sense that she helps him fight his first and his second elections in 1885 and 1886 for a Leeds constituency. She also sort of helps train him up in how to give speeches, how to speak well, all this kind of stuff, which she's been observing since girlhood. And he's rather dawnish. He tends to put audiences off. He's a bit boring. He has long, convoluted speeches. 
she helps him become a better politician. And then he enters the commons and he begins to rise. But in 1886, 87, he meets Betty Lytton and he decides he needs an actual wife. And so there's a kind of drama where Francis essentially tells Betty how much Gerald means to her. It's very unclear whether there has ever been a sexual relationship between Gerald and Francis. I think not, but it's very unclear. It's quite possible that there was. But what is clear is that Francis is absolutely wrapped up in Gerald. She's only really happy when he's around. Betty marries Gerald in a much more even-tempered way than Francis got married. She admires Gerald, she thinks he's a good man, and she thinks that they can have a successful marriage. And so she marries him, but she also says to Francis, I'm not going to come between you. I know how important your relationship is. So they agree to live across the street from each other. There's going to be latch keys all around. People can be in and out of each other's houses. They share expenses. Following that, both women have a number more children. They have four girls, two to Francis, two to Betty, very fast. And then Francis has two further children after that. Betty has another four children after that. She has six. And they raise the children largely together. There's a 10-year period where they're all living across the street from each other in Kensington. Francis called that the colony. And that's the basis for both Gerald and Francis making political names for themselves. What's surprising about it is that it isn't just Gerald who does that, it's Francis too. And it's very dynastic. Gerald becomes first chief secretary for Ireland in his uncle's cabinet, so Lord Salisbury's cabinet. And when Lord Salisbury turns things over to his nephew, who is A.J. Balfour, Gerald is president of the Board of Trade in his brother's cabinet. So it's very dynastic. But all those connections also make it possible for Francis to build up a kind of lobby that begins to work on women's issues and on the women's vote. Her father has left the Liberal Party over Irish land reform. He's a landowner, so he's very opposed to the land legislation that the Liberals put in. He breaks with Gladstone over that. Francis does as well. She founds a kind of women's liberal unionist organization along with Millicent Fawcett, and the two of them also then become leaders in the women's suffrage movement. So she's starting to put those sorts of alliances together. She's in the House almost every day. One of the most interesting things about this project, I think, is you start seeing how women in these kinds of families are trying to operate politically before there's even a hint of women having a parliamentary vote. But Francis is in the Commons all the time. There's a ladies' gallery that has a screen in front of it. You can sit there and watch the parliamentary debates. Francis is there almost all the time. She is very well known to the different MPs. She's able to get an alliance together to support women's suffrage bills. These are limited bills that would have extended the vote on the same property qualifications that men vote under. And so since most property is assumed to be family property is held by men, it would essentially have given women with independent property votes. But she starts those 
campaigns, and she gets quite far with them. She gets one bill actually through the commons on a second reading. It doesn't go further because it isn't given parliamentary time, but she's starting to build up political movement of a kind. And her family calls this as Francis's lobby. It comes apart for a number of reasons, and I'm interested in tracking that process. The personal relations come apart because Francis is jealous. She's jealous of Betty's relationship with her. Gerald, who is, after all, her own husband, but she also disapproves of Gerald's Irish policy. And she becomes just more irritable over time. She becomes quite hard to live with. And eventually, Gerald and Betty move away from Addison Road, the Kensington house, and they have a house built for them in Surrey. And so there's a breakage. But the other thing that changes is that British politics is democratizing in this period in very important ways. So the role played by kind of country house visits and political wives and kind of private negotiations is lessening. And the importance of party organization and party agents and the kind of party apparatus becomes larger. And so the kind of role that Frances aspired to before, which is the role that her sort of grandmother played, you know, of being a great political hostess, that's gone. She can't do that anymore because that role doesn't really exist in the same way. And that process of democratization is what essentially results in the 1906 liberal landslide, which changes the character of the commons very much. It becomes a much more democratic body. Francis all of a sudden doesn't know everybody there. And I think for the women's movement, it also inaugurates a very different kind of women's suffrage movement, much more progressive, much more democratic, much more working class, much more tied to a progressive politics in general. And at that point, both Betty and Francis have to kind of decide where their loyalties lie. And what I find very interesting about this is that they both lean into the suffrage movement. They both become very, very important in the suffrage movement, as does Betty's sister, who becomes a militant suffragette, Lady Constance Lytton. So the interesting thing is what starts as a kind of dynastic politics ends up being gender politics with rather different threads for men and women, partly because Betty's husband, Gerald, who's the focus of all this, you know, investment and love in a way on the part of both of these women. He loses his seat in 1906 and he decides he doesn't want to go back into the commons. And instead he becomes head of the Society for Psychical Research, which is kind of trying to figure out if there's, you know, life after death. And he takes up with a medium and becomes caught up in this remarkable effort, basically to birth a new messiah. And so he ends up in a long seven-year affair with this medium with whom he has another child. And in a way, he goes off into this kind of secret effort to have a male heir who, in a way, is going to recuperate and rehabilitate all the hierarchies of his world that he grew up with. And he thinks of what this little messiah is going to do in the most astonishingly conventional terms. I mean, the messiah is going to, you know, go to Eton and go to 
Cambridge and then go into the army and then go into parliament and Gerald makes sure he's a member of the Athenaeum club and this and that. And the child is born and goes through this. The child doesn't know until his 40s that he's actually Gerald Balfour's son. And eventually Gerald and the medium have a terrible falling out and Betty takes Gerald back. She's never not lived with him. They continue to live together. You know, the marriage survives, but there's a period where the men and women are just on completely different tracks. They're both trying to create new worlds, but those new worlds are completely different sorts of worlds. So that's what the book is about. It's an odd book for me to be writing because it's very tied up in personal relations and it's individuals. And I've written mostly works of politics and policy in the past. And this is very much about private life as well. Interesting. So you were talking about 1906, the democratic movement, and that was also the time when the two couples sort of went separate ways. So what happened then to Francis in this new world of democratic movement? Francis is working with Millicent Fawcett in the women's suffrage movement. And the women's suffrage movement that she and Millicent Fawcett were involved in, were really leading, is very much a parliament-centered, petition-oriented, kind of highly respectable movement. Probably most of the leaders of the movement tend to be from liberal families, but increasingly the kind of energy of the movement also comes from northern working class women suffragists, and then from 1903 on, from the founding of the Women's Social and Political Union, which is the militant suffragettes. And that turns militant quite early on. So in the election campaign of 1906, the WSPU has taken this tack of going to meetings and standing up and disrupting meetings, and they start being arrested. So these tactics, these suffragette tactics of disruption, causing kind of public disturbance, being sent to prison. They won't pay their fines. They want to stay in prison and they want to kind of show the public that women will suffer imprisonment and later will suffer forcible feeding for their cause. And that actually causes a kind of difficulty for people like Francis and Millicent Fawcett, because that's not the way the women's suffrage movement in the past operated. What's interesting is that the suffragist movement, in other words, the non-militant organization, which Francis is part of, starts adopting the practices of the suffragettes, not going to prison and so on, but they move their movement out of doors more. They learn that they should appeal to the public. So by 1907 and 1908, we see in Frances's diary, she says, off to sit on a lion. She means she's going to Trafalgar Square where those grand lions are, and she's going to be standing up on the plinth there and speaking. So she's doing a kind of thing that basically aristocratic daughters really didn't do. She and Mrs. Fawcett also led a march through the driving rain. I think this was February of 1908. It became known as the Mud March because the weather was terrible. There are some photographs of it. It's very funny. They're all wearing these stout boots and these, you know, they're large-hatted ladies, very Victorian-looking, marching through the streets. And it's not what 
Mrs. Fawcett, who's the widow of a cabinet minister, or Lady Frances Balfour ever thought they would quite be doing, but they realize they have to do it. And partly they need to do it because the effects of the suffragette movement have made it impossible to just pursue this decorous kind of parliament-centered strategy anymore. And so that brings Francis much more into a kind of work that at that point is very hard. She's speaking about three days a week for a couple of years. She goes all over the country on these speaking tours. She's a very witty, you know, not very logical all the time, but she's a very witty public speaker. She can respond to heckling. She teases people. She's very good on her feet. She's a big asset as a public speaker, and she's willing to do all this speaking. And then when Betty's sister, Lady Constance Lytton, becomes a militant, and Constance is a, she's somebody very attracted by the kind of suffering involved in militancy. She's happy to see herself as a martyr for the movement. So she becomes a kind of poster child for militancy because she's an earl's daughter and she ends up in prison. She disguises herself as a as a working woman and she goes to prison in order to essentially suffer the way her fellow suffragettes have suffered. She's convinced, and I'm sure she's right, that she's been spared forcible feeding in the past because people knew she was an earl's daughter, so no one wanted to get into trouble about that. But she does then have these very terrible experiences in prison, and she writes a memoir about that, and that becomes, you know, kind of cause celebre. And that also leads Betty. Betty immediately defends her sister. Gerald is very irritated about all of this. He thinks the militants are totally misguided. He won't let Betty have Constance at the house, and there's a lot of personal antagonism about this, but Betty is very, very loyal to her sister and she won't hear a word against Constance. She's not a militant, but she organizes a branch of a suffrage organization in her own constituency. She also helps set up a conservative and unionist women's franchise association. So trying to bring the conservative party more behind women's suffrage. And she does a couple of speaking tours, one to Ireland She's quite active. And so in these big suffrage events, like the women's coronation procession in 1911, Francis is leading a contingent. Constance is there with the militants. Betty is there leading a contingent. They've all kind of dug into this. And actually, Betty's brother, he chairs the alliance of members of parliament and members of commons and the lords who are trying to get a suffrage bill through the commons. So it becomes a kind of family cause, not so much for the Balfours as for the Littons, for Betty's family. For Frances's family, her family of birth, the Argyles, they all think she's crazy. None of her sisters support her. I don't think any of her daughters even support her, but she just carries on anyway. She's not a shrinking violet, Francis. She'll just keep going. Doesn't matter how much criticism she gets. She doesn't really care. What was better for Francis? Was it to be a political wife or to be a woman politician? That's a really complex question. And part of what I'm trying to get at is how important personal relations are in their own definitions of happiness. 
Frances wants to achieve things in life, but she also wants to be personally happy. And I think Frances would have loved to have had the role that, say, her grandmother did. Her grandmother was a great Whig hostess, very, very wealthy, very politically significant in the role of political life, but also she was an abolitionist and supported various causes. Frances would have loved to have had that kind of a role. I mean, the difficulty is it's hard to imagine Frances having that kind of a life because she was also quite a difficult person. I mean, she's very, very demanding. And I sometimes wonder whether the marriage went bad just because it's very hard to kind of live at the kind of level of intensity Francis wants to live at. In today's world, today, what do you think could become of a woman like her? I mean, Francis has a lot of political skill, right? She understands politics as a system. That's very rare. She's not in politics as a cause, per se. She likes the theatricality and drama of it. And one of the things that I think people find it hard to credit, but political historians all know, is that politicians have some things they want to accomplish, but a lot of it is game-like. The first job of politics is always to get reelected. And you kind of have a platform that you're pursuing at the same time, but mostly it's about remaining at the top of the pole. And Frances would have been excellent at that. You know, I could imagine her as a MP, but also as a cabinet minister, also as a prime minister. When she died, the obituaries all said if she had been a man born at a different time, she would have been a great prime minister. They talk about her, they say, Lady Frances Balfour, a woman politician. And that isn't even a concept at the time, but she is a politician. She's following, in a sense, the game of it. She likes the theatricality. She pays attention to who she thinks has talent in the sense of who's good on their feet, who's a good public speaker, who can put together alliances, who has personal charm. You know, it's those kinds of things. She does have causes. She's a feminist and people ask her why she's a feminist and she has a terrible time answering. She doesn't know. She does say, I don't really know. No one in my family is, and there's nothing in my background that would make me support women's suffrage or something like that. But she said, I always felt every person wants to represent themselves, and it's clear she does. And that's the source of some of her disagreements over things like Ireland. She can understand Irish nationalism because she doesn't think it's strange that the Irish want to represent themselves. Of course they do. She has absolutely no sympathy with the land campaigns in Ireland because she's the daughter of a, of a landed duke. She's not progressive in social or economic terms at all. But in political terms, she is. She thinks, of course, everyone wants to have a vote. Of course, everyone wants to represent themselves. That's her kind of Whig and liberal inheritance. And she never loses that. So I think she would have been a politician and probably pretty good at it. She has a lot of personal skills. You see in her life the costs for that kind of a woman to being constantly thwarted. She gets bad-tempered and she becomes quite hard to deal with, but she wants to matter in the world. 
and she has a hard time finding a role in which she can matter in the world. Being a wife and mother is not enough for her. It just isn't. I mean, Betty loves her children. She loves taking care of children. She loves spending time with her children. And Frances is just bored to tears by children. She does try and teach them. At times she's got Betty's kids and her kids. But the children all know that it's much better to spend time with Betty than Frances. That Betty loves spending time with them. And Frances is like, she just is bored by children. You already mentioned it. The research process behind this book has been a little bit different. You've been reading a lot of letters, the correspondence that has been well preserved. But first of all, how come you started this project to begin with? I came to this project through the letters in the Scottish Record Office. And that's because when I was writing Eleanor Rathbone's biography, Eleanor Rathbone was a important social reformer and feminist, and she succeeded Millicent Fawcett as the president of the main, what had been the suffrage organization and then was kind of the women's rights organization. And when I was doing that, I just went all over the country looking at collections, you know, the papers of women who had been important in the suffrage movement. So at some point I showed up in Edinburgh and tried to figure out who Frances Balfour was because I'd come across the name and I knew there were letters at the Scottish Record Office. So I went and found that collection. And when I was in that collection, I thought this is just the most remarkable set of papers because Frances knew everyone. There are letters between her, Betty, the Pankhursts, Constance Lytton, who's a militant, the prime minister's wife, so Margot Asquith, who is furious at her old friends Betty and Francis, who are now suffragists and causing all kinds of trouble for her husband Henry. Henry Asquith was a absolutely adamant anti-suffrage prime minister, liberal prime minister, and, you know, bears some responsibility for how badly the women's suffrage issue was managed politically for the First World War. So there's this very frank and interesting correspondence with all these women arguing with each other about how women should behave in public life, what role they should have. Is suffrage a good idea or a bad idea? And at the time, I, I remember saying to someone, I should do an edition of these letters. And then I got in touch with, I think, a press. And they said, no, someone is doing an edition of the letters. And so I thought, oh, good. You know, someone will do it. And I went on to other projects. I did the Rathbone book. And then I got wrapped up in this work on the League of Nations. But whoever was supposed to publish that edition of the letters never did it. So at some point, I thought, well, this is crazy. And so I just went back and started doing it myself. And at that point, I realized that this is also a story about, I don't want to say it's about letters, but it's about the difficulty of women owning their own desires and ambitions and the way they try to hide those from posterity. So the letters in the Scottish Record Office are not unedited. Frances left her letters. Frances died in 1931. And she left her correspondence to Betty. And Betty had 
80 volumes of letters from Francis, 80 cartons of letters from Francis, plus all of Francis's letters. Francis had called home a lot of her letters to write her two-volume autobiography, and she had then burned stuff that she didn't want Betty to have, including a lot of letters. Francis told Betty's father the whole story of her love for Gerald. She burned some amount of that correspondence. She burned all of her correspondence with Eustace. Betty then got all these letters, and she thought, it's all too much. She thought, I don't want to publish this. She had already published some family letters, her father's letters. And she knew perfectly well, if I publish these, I have to get rid of all of the scandal, all of the, you know, all of the things that make them so interesting. And so she said, I'm going to edit them, trying to bring out what people's personalities were really like. And then I'm going to put them away and say they can't be opened until after everybody is dead. That's what she did. Betty's compilation is about 80 volumes. And that's what's in the Scottish Record Office. And that's the first basis for this work. But Betty's compilation is excerpts that she then had retyped. So the originals are all gone. And I don't know how much she threw out. I don't know if she threw out some stuff that was really important. There isn't much correspondence between Betty and Gerald. There's almost nothing between Eustace and Francis. Some things have survived between Gerald and Francis, surprisingly. And then I started looking elsewhere as well. And at Nebworth, which is the Lytton family house, there is still a very extensive set of letters between Constance and Betty. So the two sisters. And in Inverara, the Duke of Argyle's estate, there's a very large archive that includes correspondence of Francis with her brother and with her father. And in the National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh, there's further correspondence. And then very recently, another collection was opened that people had pretty much forgotten about, which is Gerald's correspondence with the medium. That's seven boxes of thousands of love letters, scripts, pressed flowers, bits of underwear you know, everything at Harvard. And that was all supposed to have been burned. It's all an envelope saying, burn on my death, burn unopened on my death. Well, people didn't burn it. They returned it to the medium. And the medium was a kind of class A narcissist who would never have burned anything about her. And so she closed it for 50 years. She died in the 1950s. She closed it until the beginning of the 21st century, first decade. It opened about maybe eight years ago, 10 years ago, something like that. People didn't really notice it, but I'd just gone through all that stuff. And so that allows me to tell the story much more fully. I'm sure there's stuff I don't know. Frances had, when she understood that she could never really have Gerald, she had a lot of intense, flirtatious, but probably not sexual relations with other men. Frances expressed her emotions through letter writing. So I'm sure she wrote endless letters to those men too, but I think that has has not survived. So I have enough to, I think, give the character of it and enough to bring to light things that were really not 
understood at all. I think how unusual and in some ways experimental and open these marriages were wasn't really understood. The kind of deal that Francis and Betty had wasn't understood. I mean, in some ways, they betray each other at points. But in some ways, the closest relationship, the one that lasts, the one that exists day in, day out, that lasts from the moment of marriage until Francis's death is the relationship between Betty and Francis. And when things happen, like Betty has to have an operation for some reason. She doesn't think Gerald can afford to pay for it. Francis doesn't have any money to spare, but she sends Betty a check to help with the costs. Betty won't take it. Betty's mother comes through and with some money. But the women understand the kind of material constraints of their lives in a way that the men just never really think about. And Frances's daughter does remember that. She remembers that her father always loved beautiful things and bought them, and her mother's kind of trailing after trying to pay the bills. So these letters are very central in, in this project of yours, and they sound almost like a type of social media of the time that people could exchange thoughts and keep in touch. In a short piece I wrote about the project, I use the comparison to email. It's not like Twitter or anything like that, because people are writing to particular people. They're not just positioning themselves in a public consisting of whoever happens to look at your Facebook page. So it's not quite social media, but it's very like email in a lot of ways. If you mailed a letter in the morning in Kensington, it would be at another London address in the afternoon. There's 12 to 15 pickups a day for post. And there's a number of deliveries every day. And it takes a day for a letter to get to Scotland. So it's rather like email in that it's very fast. And people are responding. They're carrying on conversations through the mail. And it's also like email in that you have kind of reply to all type letters where people are telling the family the news. And so the letter is expected to be passed around a family circle and shared. So there's that kind of letter, but it's also rather like email in that there's a potential for betrayal. Betty is usually very loyal to Francis, but once Francis really angers her with statements that Francis has made in a letter about Gerald, and she shows the letter to Gerald. And that's the beginning of the breach between Francis and Gerald. And that's very like the kind of things that happen with email. People forward an email to a person who isn't supposed to see it, or they BCC something, right, to someone who isn't supposed to see it. There's a lot of that kind of letters going around to where they shouldn't be. Gerald also has his mistress, the medium, send his letters to his club rather than to his house in this kind of, you know, there's the same capacity for secrecy and for fake addresses and this sort of thing. And it's very dense, you know, there's just tons of it. And it's only because I like doing this kind of research that I had the patience for it. I mean, reading somebody else's mail for three years is kind of an odd thing to do. But it was fun for me. I found it interesting. I found the characters very interesting. It fed a kind of novelistic sensibility that I thought was fun. 
it must be a way to get very close to the characters or to the persons you write about. Yes. I mean, the problem of that, which historians are very familiar with, is kind of over-identification and what psychiatrists would call transference. And I feel I have to watch that. I've read a few things that have been helpful for me on that because I realized to begin with that, you know, these women's marriages are kind of not so great. Betty's not a complainer and she's happy in hers, but I have to be careful not to romanticize the relationship between Francis and Betty in an effort to make their lives a little better. Because I could see what I was doing was kind of plucking them out of their like not so great marriages and putting them into this better marriage with each other. I shouldn't do that just because it in novelistic terms makes a lot more sense or is satisfying. So there's those kinds of things that you need to watch for. And also Gerald's mistress, the medium, she's a very demanding person, very egocentric, quite manipulative. And I realized that I was starting to dislike her so much that it was hard for me to present her fairly. And then I started thinking, trying to think of just ways to be, try and be more sympathetic to her and to her situation and what she was doing. And I think I've managed to do that because if you write this kind of a piece, I mean, a lot of historical writing is very judgmental and I'm not interested in doing that. I'm trying to understand these people and bring them to life. And I also have to work on that with the men and particularly Gerald, who everyone falls in love with and everyone is eager to do everything for. And it's very easy to dislike him because he just comes to take that as his due. And I'm trying to keep my dislike of Gerald in bounds in order to be a more even-handed and not to be judgmental as a writer. That must be a very different way of writing also compared to your previous books. Yes, it's a real writing challenge. I mean, I'm having fun doing it, but it is a very different kind of writing. There's some similarities in that I'm a person who thinks in systems. And I realized that my earlier works, Welfare State, House of Commons, League of Nations, they're all about complex political systems. That's still present. The gender order, in a way, the way marriage relates to politics is a system. And it's got pretty clear codes, what you can do, what you can't. I'm trying to track the change over time. But the difference is I'm really not writing, this is the nature of the late Victorian gender system. <laughs> I'm never going to do that. I'm telling the story through the lives. And we'll see what people take from it. I just don't know, really. It's not what I normally do, but I've always loved the writing process and This has given me a chance to really focus on that. And it's made a big difference. I've been writing for the London Review of Books for about 15 or 20 years now. And over time, that has really affected my writing style. And it's made me move away from a purely academic style to a more conversational and also more kind of discursive style. And that's proven to be very, very helpful in this project. So we'll see. I can't write a book that is 
genuinely novelistic. I'm too much a historian, but I think I can write it in a way that would make it interesting to a lay reader and still have sophisticated arguments and make them see people in complex and rounded ways and to see also historical forces, not just personal forces at work. You were a fellow here at SCAS during the autumn term of 2021. How was your stay? For me, it was great. I have a rather demanding day job. I'm the modern British historian at Columbia. I have a fairly significant number of graduate students. I have responsibilities to a program that trains graduate students collaboratively between Columbia, NYU, and Cambridge. I also just have the other obligations that professors with, you know, a fair number of things to do have. Some amount of that doesn't go away when I'm on leave. You can't not write letters of recommendation for your students. So they follow you everywhere. Some amount of committee work follows you everywhere. You can't do anything about it. You have to do it wherever you are. And your graduate students, you hold your graduate students longer than your children. Your graduate students are with you for life. And, you know, you'll be writing for them when they're in their 50s for professorships here and there. So that amount of work doesn't go away. So that's fine. I love my job. But what was really best for me about SCUS is that I needed to be able to really clear my mind of all the things that impinge on it in my normal work life so that I could dig into this project enough to make a real dent in the beginning of it. So I went hoping that I would write the publisher's proposal and the first three chapters. And I was there for three and a half months. And that's exactly what I did. I wrote the publisher's proposal and the first three chapters. So I was thrilled. Now, it is true that research institutes are of different types. There are some that are like very focused on scholarly exchange and interdisciplinary exchange and so on. And then there's also the model of the writer's colony where you they give you a cabin in the woods and the equivalent of a St. Bernard comes with your lunch every day, you know, and you're just basically in hiding. And I kind of was more trying to do the latter than the former. I already knew what this project was about. It wasn't going to change. It was done in terms of the architecture and what I was planning. So what really mattered to me is that I had time to write And I thought it was actually kind of interesting because there was a group among us who were there only for the fall. And we worked all the time. We came in in the morning and closed our doors and worked. And I used to come in on the weekends sometimes, and that group was there. And the people who were there for a year, you're in a different mindset. You can throw yourself into the sociability and get to know people and make friends and take Swedish lessons and 
do a lot more stuff like that because the time you have is a lot. But I was only there for three and a half months. So I kept my nose to the grindstone pretty clearly. And I'm really grateful that there are institutes around that will still allow us to do that. I've been at a couple of places and that's so valuable. We started this episode with that you read a little piece for us from your book. Could we also finish off that way? Do you have something to share with us? Yeah, sure. I wrote this as the closing couple of pages of the book. The pieces that I've read for you, I don't know if I'll actually use them. They were just to help me think. But one of the people I like best in this book is Betty. She's just a very lovely person. She's very warm and giving. Betty dies in the middle of the Second World War. And at the beginning of the Second World War, Fisher's Hill, which is her country house, it's not really a country house. It's a largish house, but it's not a grand house like Wittenjum or Inverara Castle or anything like that. It's just a house, but big. It's requisitioned by the war office, as many are. And she and Gerald moved to a cottage on the estate. And they can't really afford to keep up Fisher's Hill anymore anyway. And their children have left home. This happens to a fair number of aristocrats during the war. Their houses are either requisitioned and sometimes they just can't afford them anymore anyway. So I wrote this piece called Aristocrats in Cottages. And I'll read this. It's a couple of pages. In the spring of 1940, the war office requisitioned Fisher's Hill for a battalion of Irish guards. Gerald and Betty, both well over 70, moved to one of the estate's two cottages. Their daughter, Nell, who had taken the other cottage, helped Betty, who was now very lame, choose some furniture. The rest of their possessions were sold at auction. Books worth hundreds of pounds knocked off to a bookseller for almost nothing. The clearing out process was not nice, Betty admitted, tired and boring and inevitably melancholy. Some things are like old friends, and one hates to see them go. But when Betty's friend Maud, that is Lord Salisbury's daughter, Maud Palmer, Countess of Selborne, wrote to sympathize with Betty's misfortune, Betty protested. Perhaps because she really was, as Francis's son Oswald teasingly called her, nature's steerage passenger, She had always thought it would be good to live in a cottage. This one was still in Ned Lutchen's house, pretty and with every comfort. One devoted cook housemaid had stayed with them, and with the two pounds a week the war office paid them for Fisher's Hill, they could live cheaply on 300 pounds a year. With all the horrors to flesh and blood one has to see today, she felt very lucky. As Nell joked, Betty's only war sacrifice was to try to limit her spending on stamps, But then Betty's friends began sending her books of stamps as presents. So as Gerald sat in the garden reading the papers, the front garden in the morning, back garden in the late afternoon, Betty sat at her desk and wrote letters. Life was wonderfully pleasant and deafness a great boon. She and Gerald slept peacefully through nights of air raid sirens and bombardments, hearing so very little of what daughters and maid describe as big explosions. As always, she read voraciously, Polish profile by the American-born Princess Sapieha, Gilbert Murray on Aeschylus, T.E. Jessup's Law and Love, A Study of the Christian Ethic, a new biography of Nehru by Anup Singh. She was still enough the Viceroy's daughter to find that annoying. She followed the war news closely. In July, she thought the government's roundup of aliens stupid, cruel, and quite unjustified. It was strange to see the dominions used as spare nurseries and spare prison camps. 
But that October, she listened to Princess Elizabeth's broadcast on the BBC, the volume turned up high, and thought she'd done very well. Our Labour Party, too, was admirable, and Winston and the Conservatives really excellent. Europe had been overrun, but Betty was hopeful, sure the Japanese advance would drag the Americans in. She sent news about her family and friends. By October, her brother Neville was safely back in England. Dee Dee Littleton had been bombed out twice. Her old lesbian suffragette friend, the composer Ethel Smythe, had visited the Duke of Alba, who had depressed her with his pessimism about democracies. I wonder if he thinks dictatorships are less depressing, Lady Betty commented tartly. I don't. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you very much for joining us on SCAS Talks and talking to me and our listeners, of course. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. You have heard Susan Peterson, Governor Morris Professor of British History at Columbia University, about her current book project, Balfour's in Love and Trouble. And this was the first episode in our theme, Gender. In the next episode, we travel to Peru and we'll hear more about climate change and water management from Karsten Perigard, Professor Emeritus of Social Anthropology at the University of Gothenburg. During the spring term of 2022, we are featuring the following topics. Gender, Latin America, genetics and evolution, and developmental issues and human rights. The list of podcast episodes and themes within SCAS Talks is growing. Previous topics include the coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life sciences, infrastructures and Asia, citizen and state relations. The variety of the themes reflects the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at the Collegium with fellows from many different disciplines. If you're interested in interdisciplinary research, you might also want to listen to the two episodes of SCAS Talks Spotlight, summarizing some of the thoughts and reflections from the workshop Beyond Advanced Studies – Interdisciplinary Theory and Research Careers. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. As always, we are very happy if you want to recommend this podcast to a colleague or friend. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Susan Peterson once again for joining me on SCAS Talks. And of course you for listening. Bye for now. Bye for now.